This is Outcasting Overtime, from Media for the Public Good, producer of Public Radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Hi, I'm Andrew, an Outcasting youth participant. On this edition, I'm continuing my conversation with Outcaster Casper about gender dysphoria and whether it should be considered a mental illness. Hi, Casper. Hi, Andrew. So thank you for discussing with me. So we want to continue a little bit where we left off. Last time we defined gender dysphoria, which is an incongruence between someone's experienced gender and what they were assigned at birth. Gender dysphoria is a clinically defined mental disorder, and mostly for the purposes of diagnosis for transition-related medical treatment like hormones and surgeries. But we're also delving into the topic of whether conceptually it makes sense to consider it a mental disorder. So, you know, moving on, we want to talk a little bit about how it relates to other mental disorders, because a lot of trans people, there are a lot of trans people who have, you know, other mental disorders like anxiety or depression, um, and that tends to kind of interact with gender dysphoria. Definitely. So in terms of anxiety, especially for trans people, using public transportation or facilities like bathrooms and dressing rooms can be particularly stressful. Being in open spaces, standing in line or being in a crowd, and discomfort about being humiliated, rejected, or looked down on in social interactions is very, very common. And then in terms of depression, a lot of the common things that trans people experience are thoughts of death or suicide, feeling worthless, loss of interest in pleasure and activities, trouble sleeping or sleeping too much, and a loss of energy or increased fatigue. Um, This can be accounted for a couple different things. It could be if they're not you know, in a place where they can transition if that's what they're choosing to do, if people aren't respecting them or their pronouns, or if they're just having general issues about like how they're being perceived uh, in social interactions can cause a lot of these problems. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting too, sometimes it can almost sometimes be hard to really draw the line between, you know, where symptoms are independent disorders like anxiety or depression, and where these symptoms actually just result from gender dysphoria. Like some of the things that Casper and I were talking about earlier, how gender dysphoria can really just get in the way of your life in a lot of ways. Um, And that can get in the way of, for example, your daily activities, which, you know, in some ways can be a symptom of depression if you're losing interest in them or can no longer really continue them in the way that you used to or no longer enjoy them because you're distracted by your gender dysphoria. So that may be, you know, one example of kind of an overlapping symptom where it might be hard to tell, you know, what the ultimate cause is or what the real sort of diagnosis is or reason for that symptom. Yeah, especially when you're in public settings as well, because uh, being Andrew and I being younger uh, people of the trans community, we are in situations where we do have to be social relatively frequently. Um, me personally, I'm in my third year of college and Andrew is in his first. And that's a very like social outlet where there will be, you know, parties and events and things like that. And being trans and not feeling comfortable with yourself in certain aspects can really hinder that and limit you from going out and enjoying yourself in ways that other people can. Yeah, for me, I can definitely vouch that, you know, starting college this year, I'm really happy that I've gotten a number of, like, basic transitional things done before I've started. Like, I just, you know, went through my whole legal name change process this summer. I've, you know, I started hormones in the past year. So I'm, and it's definitely just a relief to have a lot of those things done before going off to sort of like a new chapter in my life, I guess, where I'm going to you know, be trying to have new experiences and meet new people and to not have to be weighed down by a lot of those things is going to be really great. And I I almost can't (laughs) imagine like what it would be like to have to go to college and still be dealing with all of those things. It would just 
it, it would just be so much worse. That was my experience. When I first went into my freshman year of college, I had that experience where I was lucky enough that my college has a preferred name policy where you are allowed to put a preferred name in. It'll show up on your attendance and your email. So pretty much teachers would know that my preferred name was Casper. And it would also show up on my email. Um, everything that wasn't, you know, uh, aligned with was only in legal terms, but that was only things that bills that I and my parents had seen. But pretty much I hadn't started hormones yet. And I was pretty much miserable all the time because I hadn't made those steps yet. And I was fighting with, you know, several different things. I was fighting with my parents about getting my name changed and starting hormones and everything like that. But around my sophomore year is when I finally kind of got everything together. And now, thankfully, uh, everything in college is fine. And I'm in a very accepting community. But in the very beginning, it was very stressful and hard because I wasn't living at home for the first time. You know, I was on my own and I had to figure out things for myself. And I was living in a suite with seven uh, cis women, which was not easy being a trans guy. Even though they were supportive, it still caused a lot of issues because how I was seen um, from an outside perspective by other people wasn't always aligned with how I identify. Mm -hmm. So, you know, given all of these different ways that gender dysphoria can affect someone's life and just, you know, make make someone's life so much harder for them from a mental health perspective, this might be kind of a debated opinion, but I think it kind of makes sense on a basic definitional level to call gender dysphoria a mental illness or a disorder in some ways. You know, if, if you just look at it from the simple perspective of it's a problem that negatively affects someone's mental health and it requires treatment. Um, and to some degree, it's, you know, a difference in the way that we trans people sort of think or see the world. You know, when you think about how hard it is for a lot of cisgender people to understand, like, what leads someone to be trans and what it's like and what would cause you to, like, think in that way or question gender in that way. You know, there's just such a difference in the way that we think about ourselves than that other people do. From a definitional standpoint, it almost makes sense to call it a mental illness. Yeah, I would agree. I know for, you know, experiences that I've had uh, being trans and with other trans people is that you have to unlearn a lot of things, uh, gender stereotypes, how you perceive gender, the concept of gender and sex alternatively mm -hmm. is a very confusing thing. But at the same time, it's really expanded my mind and like how I view things because, you know, we are one of uh, the very few cultures that only recognizes two genders. There are multiple other cultures that have recognized three, five, or even nine separate genders. And, you know, it's a very normal and ingrained part of their, you know, their culture and their community. And we are, you know, sadly not a place that has gotten to that point. But I feel like if we could in the future, that would be, you know, a great thing to have because, you know, you don't really actively choose to, you know, be a trans person. It's something that you have to live with. And, you know, how you choose to tackle it um, really depends on how other people are going to treat you as well, because we live in a society that's very ingrained with, you know, working together, being part of a community and part of a workforce. And, you know, if you're in a situation where you're going to school, you know, you're in a very like community based learning group. And the way you are treated is very important because if you're treated really badly and people don't respect you, you're obviously not going to get any kind of pleasure or enjoyment out of doing things that you need to survive, essentially, especially as an adult. Mm -hmm. and, and I definitely understand to some degree why when you, you know, when you say, you know, that it might make sense to call gender dysphoria mental illness, that might kind of throw a lot of people off, especially at, at first here, I think, or at, at first listen, they might, they might not expect that to be what a trans person would say. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and to some degree that makes sense because historically we've had things like conversion therapy for both gay and trans people. Um, and because of that, both gay and trans people have had to fight really hard 
to get themselves recognized as not having a mental illness. Um, but the problem there was that it was a it was considered a mental illness in the sense that the treatment was to make you stop thinking that way. But I don't know if the same really applies if you are very, very clear that the treatment is acceptance and transition. Yeah, definitely. I know uh, even like one that, like you had said, they did consider conversion therapy. And it's still in a lot of places uh, is uh, highly considered as like a treatment. It's about how we view the treatment. So it's trying to correct something that's wrong or it's trying to help someone that just needs some, you know, some more help. It's like if you have any kind of other you know, issue or, you know, something that's preventing you from like functioning, there are always like other ways, you know, for people that have, you know, alcohol problems, you know, there's AA and, you know, support groups and things like that. It's kind of the same thing. Like what we need is support and we have like a reason for it. You know, gender dysphoria can be like the reason of like why I'm struggling and we just need to look at it as, okay, how can I help you then from there? Not, mm-hmm. oh, I need to fix you because something's wrong with you. Mm-hmm. And especially in a world that I think is moving towards sort of normalizing the idea of mental illness or even just generally like thinking in a way that's different from other people. It's sort of it's coming to, you know, not in all not in all contexts, but in some contexts, you know, mental illness is coming to be viewed more as, you know, a difference in the way that people think that result, you know, that's more about a struggle for them and less about them being some sort of other or some sort of, you know, sick thing. Yeah. Um, you know, it's coming to be respected a little bit more. And I think it's really only in that context that I'm I'm comfortable saying, OK, maybe gender dysphoria is a mental illness. And it's, it's you know, it's not the kind of thing where I'm going to go around picketing like gender dysphoria <laughs> is a mental illness. <laughs> Recognize it as that. You know, it's not it's not really the kind of thing that I think needs to be said in the sense that it's going to like you know, from an activism perspective, really advance the cause of trans people. But at the same time, I think it is important to recognize, like, you know, just the really large degree to which gender dysphoria impacts people's life and their mental health. Um, and I think this is a way of emphasizing that. Yeah, you can use, I guess, uh, I guess the best way to word it would be you can use mental illness kind of as like a, a loose term almost. Like mm-hmm. it's not this concrete definition, like there's something wrong with you, you need to fix it. It's like, okay, this is something that's causing me distress and like I just need help getting through it. And it's also like, it's not a thing that's caused by outside influencer exposure where, you know, some people are like, oh, if you expose my children to like homosexual couples, um, you know, it, that's going to make them gay. Like it's not like I grew up seeing heterosexual couples and I'm I'm a queer person and I'm also trans and you know it's not something that you choose you feel the way that you feel and that's just kind of how it is and it's not something that can be brushed off either it is like a very serious issue in a lot of cases that affects many people and it can lead to suicide and even murder um, in America, trans women of color have a life expectancy of 35 years of age, while their other cisgender counterparts is around 78. And that's from uh, GLAAD. And, you know, that's a statistic they did in 2018, which is, you know, only a year ago. It's very recent. So having things like that, people really need to see that it's a very serious and prevalent issue. It's not something that you could just be like, mm, you know, it's not a big deal. Just deal with it. It's, you know, our lives, essentially, you know, our safety and well-being and comfort in a lot of situations can lead to, you know, very sad and Ugh, deadly outcomes. All right, this has been a great conversation. Thanks, Casper. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening to Outcasting Overtime. Outcasting Overtime is a production of Media for the Public Good, a nonprofit organization that produces public radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Visit us at outcastingmedia.org to get information about outcasting, 
make your tax-deductible donation, watch Outcasting videos, access our social media links, and listen to Outcasting and Outcasting Overtime. Thanks, and thanks for listening.